well, what's your life story? Where are you headed um, with your life? What are your goals? What are your ambitions? Um, what are your dreams? What do you desire to come about with the remainder that you, or with the remainder of the time that you have here upon, upon the earth? And think about where you hope things are going. And as you think about that, also reflect on where has life let you down? Where have things and your expectations uh, fallen short? How has this life and the story of your life so far not worked out? I think as a pastor, as you meet people, um, and just as a, as a human, as you meet people, um, you find that people love to tell their story. Um, all the highs and the lows, the heartaches and the, and the joys. Telling a good story uh, is a wonderful experience as a, as a human. And as we approach Genesis chapter 1, we start at the very beginning of a very long and a very detailed sto uh, a story, of a story that is being told by God, a story of the creation of all things. And contained in the beginning of these, uh, of, of these verses, Genesis 1, we have in seed form um, the full trajectory of this grand story that God is telling, where things are headed, um, what we can anticipate for the future, and where we've been as a people. I am very excited to begin Genesis with you, uh, with you all as, as a congregation. I'm, I've, been, I've been reading, studying, planning to do this for, for some time, so it, it, it's definitely exciting. It doesn't come without some trepidation, because there's some wild stuff in Genesis, even beginning here with Genesis 1, and how to tell this um, and remain true to the story being told, uh, while at the same time fitting in our life story, that's going to be the way in which we approach this book. Um, this is narrative. This is, this is story. And even though there are lots of things that will happen over the course of this book, fundamentally, it's telling a simple story um, about about the, the earth, the people of the earth, and the God who has, fashioned, who has fashioned it. So as we dive in this morning, uh, we want to begin by looking at this, at this creation account and approach it as the setup to the story of the entire Bible, not just, not just Genesis. And there's, there's an idea that's kicked off here in these first few verses that I want us to focus on here this morning. And it's an idea that I have um, tried to introduce to the church in several different ways. We've talked about it in Sunday schools. I've spoken about this in other sermons, also in, in college and career and things. Um, because, and, and it's really set up here, and I want us to, to use some of the language here to describe what's happening in Genesis. Because I've, I've gone through the experience several times in several different ways, asking people, if you were to describe the story that the Bible is telling, if you can give one um, one way to, to, to summarize and synthesize the story that the Bible is telling, um, what is it? How would you describe it? Uh, and I think that it's, very, it's, it's going to be made very clear here as we approach Genesis 1, that the story that is unfolding here in these first few verses, and will continue, is the story of a kingdom and the story of, of a great king, a great king who establishes for himself uh, places where he rules and where he reigns. And we see for, our, and we see for ourselves, even as God's people, as we, how we fit in to the story of an unfolding kingdom. 
So I want us to begin there as we look at Genesis chapter 1, um, focusing on this as a story, the story in particular regarding a great king um, and this great king who establishes for himself a kingdom. So here we go. I'm going to dive right in. We're going to look at this under three headings, and the first of which is point number one, a creator who is king. A creator who is king. We're introduced to the God of the Bible in verse 1 in this way. It says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And even in that small summary statement, uh, it is packed with so much information um, regarding, this, regarding this God, regarding existence itself, a few of which are worth noting. We're introduced in, chapter, or, um, in verse 1 to this God who is completely independent, who stands alone. We're introduced to a God who seems to have absolute power. He possesses absolute power. Um, he, is like a, he is not considered as one who ha- has a beginning, but in the beginning he is noted for, for um, one particular action, creating, creating what is referred to as the heavens and the earth. You know, it's fascinating. We don't have time to go into it in this study. Maybe I'll do it in a, a Bible study at uh, sometime or somewhere. But what's, one thing that's fascinating is that the book of Genesis fits in with other, with other creation myths and accounts of the ancient world. And it's fascinating to see the ways in which it's similar to other creation stories and the ways in which it's very different. In most other creation stories of the, of the ancient world, the ancient Near East, uh, the creation of, of the world involves some sort of cosmic conflict, right? There's, this, there's a clash of, of gods, or, there, you know, or God has to, um, has to wrestle something that's outside of his control and outside of his, his power. But unlike those other accounts, here we have a God who, he doesn't take pre-existing stuff and have to shape it. He doesn't have to do battle with other, with other gods or other entities. That he creates simply out of nothing. He stands alone. He is sovereign. And the kind of sovereignty that he exercises here should make us think of an absolute king or monarch. Someone who is utterly all-powerful, who sees no challenge to his authority or to his uh, abilities to do as he pleases. He is a ruler, a sovereign ruler. Um, He is almighty, all-powerful. And in this first introductory section, He is both a creator and he is a king. Therefore, this very first verse, um, it describes this king in action, creating for himself as a king two very distinct realms. That in the beginning, God creates some place called the heavens and this place called called the earth. The tricky thing about this very first verse is, is figuring out um, what does he mean by heavens and earth? Is he speaking of, is that just a summary statement to describe all the work that happens throughout the rest of chapter 1? Or is that, or is that statement uh, describing, and I think it is, and most commentators agree that, that it is, um, that he's creating in that moment two distinct places, two spaces, uh, two realms, on the one hand, when we think of heaven as it's used later in Genesis, um, we can think of maybe the sky where the birds are or heavens where the, 
where the stars and the sun and the moon are. But the Bible also talks about heaven in a different way. It speaks of a heaven of heavens or the highest of heavens. The Bible speaks of this distinct other place, this other realm, what Paul refers to as the place where, the, where there are things that are not seen. This is the heaven that is described in Genesis 1 that God creates in the beginning. But in the beginning, God sets about creating two distinct places. One is heaven, and one is the realm of the earth. The Bible later will go on to describe this place called heaven in various ways and at various uh, times. So, for example, we're told in like Nehemiah chapter 9, Nehemiah writes that you are the Lord, uh, you are alone. You made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the sea that is all that is the sea and all that is in them. He says that you preserve both, and the hosts of heaven worship you. So see, Nehemiah there has this breakdown for creation. On the one hand, we have earth, and earth has the has um, has, has the ground, it has the sea, it has a heaven of a kinds, the the um, like the sky. But then there's this other place called the heaven of heavens. And it's in that heaven of heavens where the Bible will say things like it does here, that that is where, that is where the Lord is. That's where his, his heavenly host, the angels, um, dwell. Psalm 103 says that in that heaven, the, the Lord has established his throne, and his throne is in that heaven. Um, and it's his kingdom that rules over all. That's where God rules from in that, in that heavenly realm. It's a place where God, once again, is revealed to be a king, where he sits upon a throne, where he exercises his rule, his authority, and his dominion. And we're not given a lot of detail here in verse 1 about that place called heaven, but, the, but once again, the Bible does tease out these ideas about that space, that, that realm, that it's a holy space. It's a royal throne room. It's filled with God's glory and his presence. Uh, it's filled with, ange with angelic hosts, so angels. Um, it's where his holiness permeates everything. It, it's, um, it's where his will is done, and his will faces no challenge. Um, his power is absolute, and he has total and utter control. And in the beginning, we're told that God created that heaven. But the story that we're telling here is not a story primarily about heaven. We hear heaven once, and then it's, it's not brought up again for some time. What this account is, what this story is about, is about this place called the earth, the fashioning of this realm, which is given the shorthand earth. How God shapes it, what he does with it, and ultimately where it's headed, where this place called earth is headed, that is a story set up here for us in Genesis chapter 1. And so I want us to see then, um, as we continue on, even after verse 1, is point number 2, that we see a king at work. A king at work. The heart of this first chapter of Genesis, the, the true heart of it is the story of this creator who happens to be a king, and how this creator king sets about for an for a ordinary work week of his that he gets to work fashioning his new creation, his new, his new thing, um, as though he were a craftsman or a workman. It's very, very simple. 
that when we just consider the fact that this is a story where God sits or, or where God goes and spends six days of his, you know, plopping down, sitting at the workbench as though he's taking this lump of clay that he's created and he's going to shape it and mold it and, and set it in order. That's really the way that we should best understand these opening verses. God takes this raw material that he's brought into being and he's going to fashion it. He's going to shape it. He's going to form it and fill it and set it up um, on a course um, that, we'll, that we'll discuss by our, um, by our conclusion. God is like a sculptor, once again, who takes this raw piece of clay uh, and is going to make sense of it. And the tools that he uses for his job is his speech, his word. God will say repeatedly in this, in this section. He's going to say things, and as he speaks... Um, his desires are brought about. And it's really important for us to try and hear this story, uh, not as modern people, not as, as, as uh, um, scientific people, but to try and hear the story like ancient people uh, and, and to try to hear it as a tale of a God who's going to get up for work uh, for six days in a row. He's going to work. He's going to have his work day. He's going to work his 12-hour shift. And then at the end, he's going to turn and head home uh, before he comes back the next day. That's really the best way to understand what's happening here. And it's easy for us as people to lose track of that simple imagery that, we're, um, that the story contains. He's working the six-day work week. Uh, again, like a normal, long, 12-hour shift. And then even the end of each day, indicates for us that that's the picture we should have. Because you notice as you go through the days, during the main part of the day, God's working. He's speaking. He's doing things. And then at the end, what does it say after every day? There was evening and there was morning, uh, the, the X day, like, like the first day, the second day. Well, what does that mean? That idea of there being evening and morning, that's not a description of the events that preceded, but it's, it's given in sequence that God works and then there's evening through the morning, um, and then the next day starts. But it's just a sequence of, of events, of God, of God working. These are God's days. And whatever technical or um, scientific uh, value you want to assign to the days is ultimately not what we're talking about this morning. We're trying to see... Um, God's, or the history of God's work for what it is, a story of God, the great creator, craftsman, and the great king. And in his week, in this work week of God, he sets forth to fashion a world and to fill it, um, make sense of, of this world that he has created. And as an orderly, uh, wise, and intellectual divine, or, uh, or a divine being with an intellect, God has a particular order of operation that he works through in these days. He has a blueprint in mind. Like the way in which he works is very orderly. It's very, uh, um, he executes this in a very precise way. He, he follows a step-by-step guide. It's like he takes out his big Ikea plan and he follows the instructions because you know what to expect, what happens one thing after the other. He works in a, in a specific order that's important for us to see. And the order is this. The first three days of his work, 
God is busy fashioning and shaping, separating and ordering space, the space of creation. And then in the last three days, he's going to be concerned with filling all that space. Let me take a look at it and, and, and see the way in which this is described. Days one through three have all of this stuff in common. You see repeated use of the term separating. It's God is fashioning and separating and ordering. And so verse three, the start of the first day, speaks in this way. It talks about how um, God says, let there be light. And he uses this light to separate and to order light from the darkness. He beholds the light and says and calls it good. And he names this separation and he names these, uh, this space that he's created, these two domains, one which is night and one which is day. And as we said, after he does that, then he clocks out for the day, and then there's evening and there's morning. The next day, he's going to divide and separate and organize things some more. The second thing being the separation of the waters. He says that he separates the waters, you know, some above and some below, that he creates this expanse that is also given the name heaven, but this is distinct from that other place, that first place that we talked about. Um, this is the space where the birds will eventually, and all things that fly, that, that those things will fill. But he separates waters. He makes waters below and waters, uh, waters above and makes this great expanse. And once again, that day ends, evening and morning, until the next day. And on that third day, then he separates that, that, sea, on the, that, that sea below or that water below he separates them by raising land. He creates land and he creates seas and he, he fashions and orders all that water that was below. He also, though, in verse 11, brings forth something new. He brings forth uh, plants and trees and fruits. And there's a variation on his speech there in verse 11. Now, for the first time, he doesn't just say, let there be, but he says, let the earth Yield or let the earth bring forth and sprout vegetation. In those first three days then, all in evening and morning, all, the, all those days concerned with God fashioning, ordering, shaping, separating. God is a ruler. God is a king. And he is, as, um, and he is in some ways, you know, just creating realms where he can rule. He's, he's creating space where he can govern and he can rule as the great king. Well, those are the first three days. The second three days are then concerned with filling those spaces. And, I, and each one of those days corresponds with what came before. So if verse 3 was about, um, was about creating uh, the light and the dark, then as he fills the light and the dark, that happens on day four. Day, day one and day four line up. And he fills um, those great expanses with the sun and the moon and the stars. Then he fills that space that he has created. We also see on day four, uh, for the very first time, another distinct thing that happens. Whereas God establishes the sun and the moon, he, he establishes them not just to fill the space, but to rule, to govern the night and the day. That for the first time, we see this great king, this God who rules all things. We see for the first time, him delegate some of his authority to another ruler, the sun and the moon. Day two, 
then, oh, I'm sorry, then the next day, day five, corresponds with day two. If day two was about fashioning the waters and then the air, then he's going to fill them in day five, and that's what happens. He brings forth creatures that swarm the waters and birds that fly across the heavens. Um, that is the sky. God blesses them, and he tells them to be fruitful and multiply, uh, to fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Unlike the sun and the moon, who are established to rule those domains, the creatures of the sea and then the birds are merely there to fill. They only fill the space. They have no authority. Um, They don't rule um, on behalf of God. And then finally, when we get to day six, we see a little bit of both. Um, If day six corresponds with the creation of the dry land, then we see on the one hand creatures that are created to fill, to multiply and be fruitful and to fill the earth, to spread across the earth, all living creatures, every creeping thing. And in a similar way God describes the um, the birds and the fish, he says, let the earth bring forth these creatures, or these creatures that are there to fill, livestock, creeping things, beasts, and God calls them good. But it's on that sixth and final day of creation that something unique and special happens. That for the first time, God considers to make a creature that is made in his own image. Let us create man in our image, after our likeness. And in what way is it is the image of God seen here? Well, hopefully, I've convinced you enough to, con- to consider the fact that even though we can talk about the ethical character of and, and, and human dignity and those sorts of things, the main idea going on here is let us make a ruler in our image. That if God is a creator and a king, um, he's going to fashion someone who will rule upon the earth that he has created. Unlike all the other creatures who proceed according to their kinds, man is fashioned after God's image to rule and to take dominion over all the creatures and over the earth itself. And this, this language has this royal quality. Um, There's ruling, there's reigning, there's having authority and power. And the same sort of qualities that characterize God as his king, now people who are made in his image are also set forth with those, same, uh, with, with those same objectives, to rule and subdue. So once again, here's a summary of how things work. For six days, God is a workman. He spends those first three days separating space, creating space, creating space for a kingdom to flourish. Then he fills that space with creatures, and with things according to their kind. But he also goes about setting setting up rulers in this new space called the earth. That in the expanse of, of or that between the light and the dark, he sets up rulers uh, in the heavens or in the sky, the sun and the moon. But he also has this final creative act to create man. And man is characterized here as rulers, as little kings upon the earth. And the only, uh, or, and the authority that they have to, to rule is the very fact that they're made in God's image. And something interesting and something unique is happening here in the creation of the earth um, that God is doing, that is setting up 
not just the story of the Bible, but the story of your life as well. So the final thing I want us to see is point number three, uh, the royal image. Uh, the royal image. At the end of his work, of his six-day work week, um, our God enters into a Sabbath day of rest, a day of rest that is unending, according to the author of Hebrews, and endures. But what has God done? What is he seeking to accomplish in the fashioning of this new place called the earth? What is he doing by establishing man in this unique sense with an image and as a ruler? And it's very simply, uh, very simply this. The history of this world and the history of all of humanity is the history of God bringing his rule and his reign and establishing a kingdom upon the earth. And while God reigns in heaven in a, in a specific way, uh, where he rules directly, he's, in a, you know, he's sitting on his throne, um, and he is the one giving the orders, as it were. On the earth that he's created, he's, a, he's establishing a, a kingdom as well. He's establishing rulers as well that he's going to reign there in the same way or in a similar way to how he reigns in heaven. But yet in this place, in this earth, God is delegating rule and reign over all things and giving that to those who are made in his, in his image. But the point and goal of, of the human story is to rule the world. And as I've mentioned before, the basic plot and motivation of every supervillain at its heart is good and is right. Because man is created to rule and to take over the world. That is what is set up here for us. When we contemplate creation and the works of God, um, we have to examine our, our place as humans as those who are established by him to rule in his stead and marvel at the fact that he has designated all of humanity for this task. So, for example, if you turn to a place like Psalm 8, the psalmist says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him, speaking of man, a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. And you have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet. What the psalmist says there is the Bible interpret like, like the correct biblical interpretation of, of Genesis 1. That as humanity, we look out at all of creation, we marvel at the handiwork of God, we see how God has, uh, has set everything in order, and then we are confounded by the fact that even, though the, that even though those are his works, he's done that work by his hand, he's given dominion to man to those whom he has made lower even than the angels. And he's put all things under our feet. That man is created to rule the world and to bring the whole earth under the rule and under the domain of, of our great creator and king. And so God creates the earth to, to establish this kingdom, and yet he goes about ruling in that place in a very specific and unique way. Um, whereas in heaven, we say maybe, you know, God's presence fills the heavens uh, or, you know, fills heaven. Here on earth, while he's going, he's going to be everywhere as well, 
but he does so by his image bearers going forth and being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. And in that way, the presence of God is, is everywhere. And this idea that the earth is what we are created for and our rule on earth is what we are hoping for in all of life, that should completely reorient our understanding of heaven and earth and our, and our future. Like our, our desire as a people is not for a, future, um, uh, for a future in heaven that is disconnected from this world, that is disembodied, ethereal, and so forth. But our desire is for an earth, an earth that is holy, an earth that is filled with God's presence, uh, an earth that has, been, uh, that has been cleansed of all sin, an earth that has been rejoined with, with heaven, where things are on the earth as they are in that heavenly throne room that we have, that we have described. And that vision of heaven coming down and earth and heaven being joined together, where God's people dwell in his presence, and all pain and sorrow has been removed. That is the vision that the end of this story um, has, or the, that the Bible has when it describes the end of the story. That's the very vision of Revelation 21, when the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven to the earth, and Christ dwells in the midst of his people. And yet, if that's the story that God establishes, um, that Man is to rule upon the earth in place of God. And then that's the end, that's the future. The great story of the book of Genesis and of the Bible and of your life is dealing with the complication and the fallout, the complexities, the twists and turns of that plot. That very clearly, uh, if we look around, the goal of all of creation doesn't feel at times as though it's come about. That the plot has gotten messy Things have gotten complicated, and we will talk about that complication in a, few, in a few weeks. But this idea, this story of the kingdom, of a creator king who sets up kingly rulers, speaking of humanity, that is where all the disparate, start, or where all the disparate parts of the Bible find their unity. It's going to be the story that, um, that is being told. We consider the fall, the patriarchs. We consider um, the people in Egypt, Israel, all of it centers on this kingdom. Centered on God who is king. And mankind, and in particular an individual man, who will take the central focus and take up the task that was once given to all people. We're going to close with some comments regarding how Crucially important, it is to see Christ himself as the central figure to make sense of everything that we've talked about here. And it's not merely a tack on to the sermon um, to talk about Jesus, but because in Christ himself we see the fullest revelation of God as creator and also Christ as man or the fully realized man who takes up the work that man was created for. As you read in, first, or as you read in John, John identifies Christ as the very word of God, there in the beginning with creation, that when God is using the word of his power to speak light into the world, 
But that is Christ. All things are made through him. And without him was not anything that was made. He is the fullest revelation of God. So as he would tell, as he would tell uh, people when he was ministering on earth, if, you want, if, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. That if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know God's power, if you want to know his character, well, look to Christ. For in, for in, in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells in his body. But he's also the fullest revelation of man, the true man. So when Hebrews takes up Psalm 8, which we read, and uses it to, to, uh, to speak of Christ, it talks about how Christ, through his death, and through his resurrection, that he truly has put all things under his feet. It's no coincidence then that when Jesus comes calling, he enters on the scene. He comes promising to deliver a kingdom. And it is this very kingdom that is described in Genesis chapter 1. This is the same kingdom with the same rule that has been given to image bearers. And we have in Christ one who has secured for himself and for all people the kind of rule and reign that we saw from the very beginning. But the exhortation for us today is even though we may not see Christ ruling the way that we would desire, that by faith we have to acknowledge that he is. And that our great hope is that he will put all things in subjection to himself in the way in which our hearts desire. Hebrew, the author of Hebrews says this, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the sufferings of, of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. When the Bible talks about things like desiring a crown or how we're going to be given crowns on, on that last day, well, because we're joined to Christ, then we will share in his rule. And the only way to make sense, therefore, of your life story, and the only way uh, to find consolation, even when you consider those things that have gone wrong, is to see your life story hidden in the story of Christ. That as he has conquered and been elevated and will deliver up this kingdom to his father, that if those things are true of him, as you believe in him and trust on him, you will have a share in that great and glorious future. That salvation from sin is a wonderful and blessed um, reality for Christians. But we're saved from sin and the domain of darkness. And we've been transferred to this kingdom of light, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. That we've been saved to become people of this kingdom. Uh, that, and even though we may not feel um, like adequate rulers right now, that as our bodies are raised with Christ, we will rule with him in all perfection and righteousness, uh, holiness, and truth. And as we acknowledge, you know, week by week that we're not, we also confess that he is. And because Christ is, we are joined to him. God considers us to be now and will make us so 
in the future. Let that be our glorious hope uh, as we continue from here, from this day forward. Let's pray.